Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Monday, December 11th of 2017. I'm your host, Eric Dane. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we're going to speak to the National Voluntary Services Director of Disabled American Veterans, John Kleindienst. We're going to talk to him about several of the DAV's programs, including their efforts to ensure that veterans have transportation to their appointments at the VA. Later, we'll be joined by a former Navy SEAL who's looking to get into a new line of work that some might consider even more dangerous than his old job. What could possibly be more dangerous than being a special operator, you ask? Politics. Dan Crenshaw is running for Congress in Texas. We're going to find out why and what his plans are if he gets elected when he joins us live in studio later on this morning. All that and more on today's show and the more kicks off right now as we welcome super producer Jake Hughes into the studio. Good morning, Jake. How are you? Oh, good morning. I had a very interesting weekend. You did? Yes. Something happened to me. It's a funny story, but it's the kind of thing that can only happen to me. Okay. Okay. So as I mentioned on the show before, I recently purchased a new gaming PC. Right, right. It's it's not top of the line, but it's pretty good. Yeah. And I've been enjoying it. I mentioned this because back in October, I was watching a live stream event where they were giving away a brand new top of the line high end gaming PC. And I found out Friday, guess who won? <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. If I had waited a w- if, if I had checked that website a week earlier, I would have saved myself a lot of money, but wow. Well, now you've got two, right? Yeah. Well, what now you- what I'm going to do is the the inferior one, the one I bought, I'm going to wipe it and then put it on eBay so I can pay off the credit card. When you list it on eBay, I recommend not calling it inferior. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> that is, you know, I've had things like that happen. And, and I thought, and it's actually related to gaming, because you and I, I think out of all the people here, we're the only two that really uh, play the video games. You're more of a PC guy. I'm more of a uh, console guy, because I don't know why. I just always have yeah. been. So, uh, you know, Either or, really. I grew up in the era where everybody had a Nintendo, or in my case, a Sega Master System, and then just graduated from there. For me, let's see, Master System, Genesis... PlayStation 1, Xbox, Xbox 360, Xbox One. And last week, my Xbox One, which I honestly don't get to use for gaming as much anymore. I have a family and stuff that keeps my <laughs> keeps my time very well Things occupied. Yeah. And it's also on the main TV, which is where you know my wife likes to watch her shows, like Live PD every Friday and Saturday, The Walking Dead on Sunday, although she's kind of fallen out of love with The Walking Dead. I did about a year and a half, two years ago. She now, like, she didn't watch it last night and didn't even realize till afterwards. She was like, okay, I guess I'll watch it on DVD. But we use the Xbox as our streaming device because, you know, we watch Netflix and we have Amazon Prime and watch videos on there. All of a sudden, it wouldn't connect to our Wi-Fi network. Like, last Wednesday or Thursday, it just stopped. Hmm. And I was like, huh, all right, well, we'll troubleshoot this. We'll figure out the problem. 
it, it could see the Wi-Fi network. I'd put in the right password, and then it would say cannot connect. Go through these steps. I'd look at them and say, nah, I guess we did like a hard reset of the system, or not a hard reset, uh, a hard power cycle of the system and everything. You know, things that you do when you're a little knowledgeable when it comes to technology. Didn't work. So then I was like, all right, well, I'm going to have to go to factory reset of the system and see if that works. And I'm, I'm at that point, like most of my games I play, they're online. So most of my, uh, you know, progress is saved wherever up in the cloud. Uh, there's a couple games though, that the, the statistics are saved on the system. And I'm like, man, I had played, and this shows you how much over the last, I guess, three years since, uh, NBA 2k 15 came out It's a uh, really, really good game. It's like a role-playing game and sports simulator mix. Right. I had played uh, two and three quarters full NBA seasons, meaning I wow. played all. Well, I played probably about 41 games of the first season because you don't play the full season uh, just the way it's set up. The entire second season won the national or won the NBA championship was in the process of a third season where I think like 55 games in my team had yet to lose a game because it was an incredible team with me as the centerpiece. Of course. Naturally. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to lose like three years of progress on this, but it's better than spending a couple hundred dollars on a new console. Factory reset still didn't work. Like the so, Wi-Fi. Yeah, like the Wi-Fi uh, card or something in the Xbox. Did you try? Could you back up out. the information on like a flash drive? No, it wouldn't let me. I couldn't get that. I couldn't oh. get the stuff from that one. So that's gone. Going to have to replace the, uh, well, we're, we're deciding. Do we really want another Xbox? I mean, I put a lot of money into the games. Eh, we'll see. So, yeah, that was uh, that was the sad part of my weekend. We did a lot of Christmas decorating this weekend. Uh, apparently, there was a football game. Now, I know oh. a lot of people who were very into the Army-Navy football game. That's right. I don't even know who won. <laughs> uh, the Army did. Oh, awesome. And yeah, good for them. And and here's here's the stance I've always taken on the Army-Navy game. Uh, I didn't go to Annapolis, so I'm not really all that invested in what yeah. happens in that game. You know? I didn't go to West Point, so yeah. it's the same thing. They're not my alma mater. My alma mater beat Army in basketball earlier this year, so there you go. There's my win over <laughs> There's Army. There's your victory. It's my actual school. So yeah, the Army won. A very close game in the snow. Our own Phil Briggs was up there. You can go to Connecting Vets' Facebook page. We are at Connecting Vets to see a bunch of video that he shot. He had field access and everything. I mean, he was there and shooting everything. Um, I think at about halftime, his uh, camera stopped working because of all the <laughs> snow and water. So it ends about halftime. But Phil got a lot of great stuff from up there. Final score was, I think, 13, 14, 13 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do remember hearing that the Navy uh, missed the game-winning field goal. Yeah, they had a chance for the game-winning field goal, and they missed it. And I think I, I didn't watch the game. I watched yeah. a couple minutes of it and went like, yep, there it is. And then, then we had other <laughs> stuff to do. The um, the Navy apparently had a false start penalty on like their first field goal try and had to – so that drew, put them a little bit farther back. And, yeah, like, the, you know, there's some uh, – there's some issues there. So, you know, congratulations to the Army football team. Uh, my my re only real connection to the Navy football team, I went out there on the Navy's birthday, and we interviewed a couple members of the team. Really seemed like nice kids, uh, nice future officers, these two uh, midshipmen that were in their final year. And, you know, I, you feel bad for them not winning on their way out, but they won two out of four years that they were there. Yeah, so, you exactly. know, what are you going to do? Um, congratulations to the United States Military Academy at West Point football team for their victory over the Naval Academy at Annapolis, uh, their football team. And the interesting thing, too, from a Navy perspective that, that I have to remind a lot of my fellow sailors, like 75, 80 percent of the kids on the Navy football team, they're going to be Marines. 
we were down there talking to them and talking to the coaches, and they were like, yeah, all, most of them. Not all yeah. of them, but most of them are going into the Marine Corps. They choose to do that, or they want to. You, it's 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 a weird situation at the Naval Academy where essentially you have uh, a portion that are going to go into the Navy. That's the majority. Then there's a certain number that they will take into the Marine Corps. Um, and I don't know if being on the football team makes you more likely to be able to get one of those appointments to the Marine Corps or what, but that was the plan of both of the players that we interviewed and a lot of the players that were on the team. So, yeah, there's... Um, uh, a lot going on there with that. A lot of people are interested in it. And I, I'm, you know, everybody who enjoys it, have fun with it. That's yeah. just, I've watched it sometimes and it's fun to watch. It's an interesting game and in that it's kind of a throwback. The Navy has been running this uh, like triple option offense. It looks like the wishbone. It, it's, it's like an early 20th century football <laughs> offense and nobody's used to playing against it. So they, they've been very successful with it over the last 15 years or so. The Army used to run a more pro-style offense and didn't quite have the pro-style players <laughs> to pull that off. So that was a big part of the Navy beating them for so long was just different styles where the Army was, you know, they had like, what was his name, Bobby Brather. They had former NFL coach coach him, and they were trying to run this pro-style offense, but again, didn't have quite the level of player that you'll find at one of the top 25 schools. Which which is understandable, because oh, yeah. the, the, the primary mission of West Point and Annapolis is not to win football games, it's to train officers. No, and in the Navy, if you're six foot seven, 320 pounds, like most offensive and defensive linemen in college, Division One A college football are, you're useless to the Navy. You yeah. can't, you're not going to be on a ship at that size. You're not going to be flying a plane at that size. So what are you going to do? You know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting thing where they do have some guys. I, you know, when we went over to uh, Annapolis and a beautiful campus and great to be able to talk to the players again, uh, you know, it was a wonderful experience to be able to go over there, got the, uh, the press guide and you look down there and there's like four or five guys who are 300 pounds that's their football playing weight. They're going to lose weight when they go into right. the military. You're not going to be walking around at 300 because the way that the military, uh, the, the way that the military uh, looks at your body fat and all that stuff just doesn't work to be 300 pounds with the old school rope and choke method that they do. But anyway, yep. um, you know, so the Navy adapted to that years ago and started running the uh, triple option offense. And it was very successful. The Army in recent years has come around to that, and now it appears as they've won two years in a row after losing for 13 in a row, I think. 14? 14? No, oh, yeah. thank you. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit more of an even playing field now. Yeah, we've cracked the code. Yeah. Although Navy was, by all, by all uh, rights, a better team this year. They were ranked in the top 25 at yeah. one point. Actually, when we went down to interview them, they were ranked in the top 25, and then they lost their next game, which... I don't know if you could blame that on us or not, but uh, you know, I guess I'll take the blame <laughs> if you want us to. They, um, but when it comes down to a rivalry game, it often doesn't matter what your record is and who's who's better and who's what. Sticking with the Navy, let's look at this story that came up. Uh, this was on Friday. Oh man, it just dropped out on me. Where are we? Oh, I got to find the story again, Jake. So you know, we've seen stories, uh, particularly since the election in January, quite a few of these. What would you call them? Hoaxes, I guess. And now we've seen at least two in the military when it comes to alleged hate crimes. Oh, right. You remember right. at the Air Force Academy when someone claimed that, you know, at a lot of colleges they have the little message. People have their dorm room and they put the little message board on there for people to leave them a message if they're not there or whatever. Of course, 
in the ab- in the day and age of cell phones. I don't know how necessary that is, but I believe at the military academies it's required that you have it on your door. And someone claimed that uh, someone wrote at the naval or not naval academy, Air Force Academy uh, earlier this year that someone had written a bunch of racist uh, hate messages on the boards, the whiteboards outside of the rooms. And it turned out that the person who made that claim was actually the person who did it. Well, now, man, in the Navy, we have these things called ships. Aircraft carriers are the biggest of those ships. You know, 7,000 people living on them. Well, you lost me. Ships? Yeah. They're like uh, big rowboats, but with engines and nuclear nuclear power and airplanes take off of them. So that's the best way to describe an aircraft carrier. It's like a giant rowboat. With nuclear propulsion and airplanes. (laughs) There you go. I just broke down the Navy for you. Um, There was a sailor on board the USS George H.W. Bush, CBN 77, who claimed that uh, over social media that he was the victim of a hate crime, essentially, that someone had dumped trash on his rack, as we call beds on a ship and throughout the Navy, really. Uh, They had dumped trash on it, scrawled the N-word and other racist hate messages, when you post a photo like that, you know, NCIS, the real ones, not the fake ones on TV, they're going to start looking at that. They're going to get involved because that's not acceptable. You can't have something like right. that happening on a ship. Um, this guy posted on his social media post, I proudly serve the Navy and this is what I'm receiving in return. Hashtag sailor asking for help. Things are getting out of hand. Please share. Somebody knows th- something. Thank you all for your guidance. Um you know, he said it's not the first time he was being called a word such as that, which was scrawled on the, the bulkhead behind his rack. It puzzled me as to who would do it and why they would do it. Well, it looks like Uh-oh. it shouldn't have puzzled him because according to NCIS supported command inf- information, uh, command investigation, I should say, uh, that the alleged victim actually staged the incident himself. Oh, yeah, that's what uh, that's what the investigator told Navy Times. And this story has since gone around the world. But this has just been uh, it's been ridiculous, man. Since January, there has been an increase in the amount of fake hate crimes. It's been a significant increase. I know that because I worked in a newsroom in uh, really since November is when it started after the election. And and you've got to tie it directly to the election, I think. A lot of people who uh, felt that this was a move that uh, promoted racism in some way or whatever. A lot of these things started happening. I saw them up in New York City where I was working. There was uh, a young lady who claimed that she was attacked on a subway by people wearing Make America Great Again hats. Turned out she was actually out um, with her friends drinking and was from an observant Muslim family. And that doesn't really swing uh, very well with her father. So she made up this uh, hate crime thing thinking it would be a good excuse for when she got home. Of course, the New York subway system is uh, very well documented with cameras and all that stuff and where she claimed it happened, which I believe was at Grand Central Station. Even more cameras than you normally have at a subway station. Uh, That was one. You saw some University of Louisiana Lafayette, a similar uh, claim of something happening. And, And now two major ones in the military. And both have been proven to be hoaxes. Both have been proven to be staged by the people who claimed to be the victim I don't know, man. What's going on with that? It's 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 just it's not cool. Like you you are fostering an environment of hatred essentially by creating these fake events where then you get people who believe you 
says, hey, you're a sailor in the United States Navy. This was an aviation bosun's mate airman, so an E3. Uh, Airedale worked up on the flight deck. No one had any reason not to believe him that we know about. Now, at the command level, you don't know. Maybe somebody was like, oh, this guy, really? Yeah, this, this. Maybe they knew there at the ground level. But from what we saw, this is something that the media is going to take and the media is going to, going to put out there and the military is going to address like they did with the Air Force Academy one where you had the uh, – the, I don't know what his job what his job title is. Is he the commandant of the academy yeah, or something I like so. that at the Air Force Academy? Came out and gave this speech that got a whole bunch of media coverage because it was a great speech about, hey, if you don't believe that everyone who is here belongs here, get out, leave. And that's exactly the right message to be putting out. The problem is it was in response to something that didn't happen. And that kind of subtracts from that message and then it also you know if you went around and asked how many people who saw the big headline of you know racist incident in air force academy how many people saw the smaller story of well it was actually the and person that's who did. that's part of the reason why i think some people do these things is that they they're trying to bring attention to something that may not be there but it gives people an excuse to say okay yeah well yeah that one's fake but it points out the fact that those kind of things do happen yeah yeah and you know what? Each time that something like this happens, and we saw it at the Academy, and we've seen it now here with the Navy, where the Navy is saying, like, you know, while this incident didn't happen, we're using this, uh, we're taking advantage of this time to talk about how, you know, these incidents are unacceptable. And I think that's the wrong answer. The, I think that the fact that it's a hoax should be plastered on the front page of the Navy Times. Yeah. Because... Oh, and it was. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, good. Because what you're all you're saying by saying, well, yes, but you're... What's the, how am I trying to describe this? You're basically saying that we accept these things happen. Yeah. And what you need to do is say, look, no, these things are incredibly rare. And this example right here is a false. It's a hoax because the military doesn't tolerate that kind of thing. Yeah. And you know, I saw, I, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, oh, yeah, I, I saw, I saw some really racist people when I was a drill sergeant, but here's the thing. They never made it past initial entry. They never made it past uh, reception. We weeded them out and kicked them out right there. Not many people get past basic training without being showing their true colors. Yeah, and you know, it's a um, you know, do things like that happen? I never saw anything quite like that. You know, I never saw anybody uh, writing racial epithets on a bulkhead of a navy ship. I never heard of anyone doing that. Does it happen? I can't say it's never happened, but I can tell you that in this case, it didn't. And if it did happen regularly, it's something that would be, again, on the front page of the Navy Times because this, especially in this era with social media and things being able to go viral so quickly, this story, I knew about this story. I heard about this story and saw it and was like, man, that is horrifying if it's real. But again, because I worked in a newsroom where I saw it seemed like nearly every case that we were getting in that we saw, you you could tell very quickly whether it was real or not. This one, just because of my experience in the Navy and my limited experience in three out of my 13 years being on ships, didn't seem legit. Like I was like, I can't imagine somebody doing this on a ship. First off, the 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 possibility of someone being caught doing it, dude, that's the end of your Navy career. You oh, yeah. may be going to... Quantico, someplace like that, to do some time over something like that. I saw people do time over a lot less. And then there's the uh, that's the other question. This guy uh, facing discipline on the ship, they're saying. I believe his name is uh, Marky Lee, it looks like they're saying. Uh, an aviation bosun's made airman. Um, 
saying that, you know, he's, he's being disciplined on the ship. He'll continue to serve in his capacity on board the ship. Would the person who uh, was supposed originally to have done this gotten the same sort of treatment? No, no, that person would have been gone from the ship. They would have been gone from the Navy. And honestly, someone doing something like this, get rid of him. You don't need someone like this. What, what's the point of even having, having someone like that around where you know now you cannot trust this person? Honor, courage, commitment. Those are the Navy's core values. Uh, well, he, he ex- has ex- uh, exemplified a commitment, I suppose, because yeah. he's committed to the fact, like, uh, no, I didn't do that. Even now, there was some brief statement from him saying that he didn't do it. Um, listen, the NCIS investigation says that you did. I'm going to go with that because, again, we've seen so many of these incidents. And I think when we do see racism in the military, it's it's going to be typically in uh, someone showing preferential treatment for someone else or doing things that way. I, writing things on a wall, I don't know about that, man. I, we did see one very recently of a couple Marines out at a party screaming racial epithets off of a balcony which was insane, and hopefully those people were kicked out of the uh, Marine Corps or dealt with uh, strongly by the Marine Corps. But what they weren't doing was going to their command, and even those idiots who were doing that were not writing things on the walls. We're not you know, showing people like, oh, yeah, hey, this is, this is me. Now come find me. Because you can investigate those things, and you can, uh, can figure out who's behind it. So, yeah, it's just it's a very... Uh, it's not a good situation. And again, we've seen more of these and part of it is social media, you know, where now these things go viral and then an investigation starts. And if every time they look into one of these incidents, nothing happened, then you wonder, listen, okay. In the day of uh, social media where you're able to put photos up there, which gives them a little bit more to investigate how many of the older items that were supposed to have happened may not have happened. You know, when someone does something like this, if this young sailor really believed that things like this happen in the military, he's done an incredible disservice to anyone who has been a victim of anything by doing it himself. Exactly. Yeah. It's, 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 you would think, uh, very, it would be very evident to someone, but I don't know, man, you just keep seeing it out there. And I think sometimes people, even when it's something horrible, want to believe that it happens or they're convinced that it does happen, but they just can't prove it. So, Hey, I'm going to go ahead and make a, make my own example. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And again, they're saying that he's going to continue to serve aboard the ship. I don't know that that's the best thing for this young airman. I think it's uh, and he's not that young either. They said he was 27 years old. So this is not fresh out of high school, 18 years old, brain hasn't fully developed yet. This is a 27-year-old man who happens to be a lower-ranking member of the military who put this out there. What's his life going to be like on that ship? He's going to be looked looked at yeah. by everybody, rightfully so, as a liar, as someone that you can't trust, as someone who doesn't have honor, as someone who doesn't have courage. It's it's yeah, I don't I don't know why someone like that would be allowed to serve in the military after that investigation resulted the way that it did. Uh, I would th- hope it's going to be very hard for him to reenlist uh, after that at the very least. But honestly, he should get the same punishment that someone who would have been uh, the actual perpetrator of this uh, this hate crime if it were real. And that would include, I'm sure, uh, you know, being kicked out of the military. Yeah, so. Because it's it's the boy who cried wolf. And we got to wonder how horrible it would be if this kind of stuff keeps happening to the point where when something does happen, we're like, oh, it's probably another hoax. Yeah. 
Boy, you know, I can think of a lot of people in a lot of industries right now who could benefit from a little reread of The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to The Morning Briefing here on Intercom's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. And, of course, that is the website, your one-stop shop for all things veteran-related. We've got a great story on the... Uh, you know, the, the Army-Navy game up there. We've got some good stuff on Syria. Five mistakes that veterans can appeal at the VA. California National Guard troops being activated to fight wildfires. And DOD raising concerns about another government shutdown. Those California fires out there, man. Any Ridiculous. of our veteran friends it's who are out there. Insane. Be careful, because you look at it. Uh, former coworker of mine from New York, she moved out to uh, L.A. to uh, pursue her dreams of uh, working in Los Angeles rock radio and is doing a great job out there. Posted photos like from her window, you could see massive fires out in the fields. It's 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 crazy. I saw a video taken from someone driving. I think it was a dash cam. Somebody driving along a highway. The entire landscape in front of them was just flames as they drive towards them. Which, uh, okay, I, I understand how cameras how, work. How that's how highways work. <laughs> yeah, and, and that the fire was uh, was not a threat to those cars right away, but there was smoke there and there was all sorts of stuff. Just a, uh, a horrifying, horrifying time going on out there. I'll say this. Thank goodness they're not still in a drought out there, that they actually oh, yeah. have water to fight these fires with. You know, we've seen uh, various, uh, you know, I saw a video of a Marine Corps helicopter, and the Marines are involved in this too now, uh, picking up water out of a lake to go drump, to go drump, to go jump on the fires uh, and drop that water on them uh, again just a couple of years ago, and they wouldn't have had that water to do that. So a little bit of fortuitous timing, I would say. Speaking of timing, we're just about done with our very first segment here on The Morning Briefing. Coming up, we're going to have the National Volunteer Service Director of Disabled American Veterans talking to us about all their programs. And later, Dan Crenshaw, former SEAL, future congressman. Yeah, stick around. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing on Intercom's ConnectingVets.com. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer in ConnectingVets.com. That's your website. And we mean that. Created by veterans for veterans and focusing on the veteran community and experience, ConnectingVets.com is your one-stop shop for all thing veteran-related. And to be kept abreast of what we're doing on that website, because we know the boss isn't going to appreciate you refreshing the Connecting Vets page throughout the day, you don't need to do that. Just follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you go there, the latest and greatest is right at your fingertips. Just a click in your mouse, tap on your phone, and your life will improve because you will know about everything a veteran needs to know. So please go do that. Follow us on the social media pages. I cannot stress how important that is, not just to us, but to you. Now, there's perhaps no subgroup within the military that has captured the public's imagination more than the Navy's elite SEAL teams. They're also the recipients of much-deserved respect and admiration from that same public. Politicians, on the other hand, don't seem to have that same level of respect and admiration. Quite the opposite, in fact. So why would someone want to go from being a member of a SEAL team to a member of Congress? 
It's an interesting question, and there's nobody better to ask than our next guest. He is Dan Crenshaw, former Navy SEAL and current candidate for Congress in Texas's 2nd District. Good morning, Dan, and welcome to the Morning Briefing. Morning. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about Dan Crenshaw a little bit before we uh, ask you the hard questions about why in the heck you want to run for Congress. Glutton for punishment. There you go. (laughs) Who is Dan Crenshaw? Where'd you come from? When did you join the Navy? And then, I already gave a little bit of it away, but what did you do while you were in the Navy? Well, from Texas, uh, six generations or so, and um, you know my family comes from the energy industry, so we're from Houston, oh. and um, I always wanted to be a SEAL. You know, since about age twelve, uh, you know, I read a Dick Marcinko book, a Rogue, oh, yeah. Rogue Warrior. Yep, <laughs> um, very cool, and I was hooked uh, right from the beginning, and uh, that that drove you know my goals in high school, college, everything. I did ROTC. I was commissioned as an officer in two thousand six. I went straight to Buds. And uh, as, as most SEALs will probably tell you, uh, you, you get rolled back. And most guys get injured yeah. uh, going through. I had, in my particular case, it was a, a fracture in my tibia um, right in the middle of Hell Week. So I had what we call the full benefit mm. of getting to do it all over again. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and that, that is certainly the, uh, I, I think, the normal route guys take. Um, I went to SEAL Team 3 after graduating. It takes about a year to two years to, to make it through the training, depending on how many times you get hurt. Right. Uh, started out at SEAL Team 3, uh, met the team out in Fallujah, Iraq on my first deployment, uh, did some work in Basra as well, came back, um, started my uh, assistant platoon commander tour, which turned into a platoon commander tour when, uh, <laughs> just, uh, you know, for those of you in the military, you know how things change. Oh, and, uh, adapt and overcome, baby. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so 2010, I was back in Iraq in Ramadi and, um, you know, watching the sort of the, the us wrap up the war, so to speak. Yeah, well, and, of course, a little bit still going on yeah, these days, but right. of course that yeah, the there was, initial there was, war. <laughs> there was there was still there is still a lot to do, um, and we were doing a lot, and, and I'm really proud of that. And um, came back, and on my third deployment uh, was to Afghanistan. Uh, still with SEAL Team Three, and uh, you know that 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 deployment's when my life changed forever. About six months in, uh, you know, six months in, uh, we were we spent one day in Helmand Province. <laughs> Ah, down with we, the Marine yeah, Corps down there, right? Yeah, yeah we were we were uh, supporting a Marine operation uh, in in Helmand. We were normally based out of Kandahar. Okay, we had operated all over the province uh, for the you know the past six months, and um, supporting some Marines in in Helmand. One of our Afghan interpreters uh, stepped on a pressure plate right in front of me, mm. and uh, I took the brunt of that blast. Kind of feels like you're getting hit with a truck. But, uh, you know, while simultaneously getting shot with shotguns, <laughs> so as I generally describe that, that feeling and, you know, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners uh, probably understand that. And, uh, I was blinded immediately. Uh, my body was shredded. Uh, you know, I, I, there was a moment of self-deception to be sure. I, I didn't really know that I was blind. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see, but you just sort of assume everything's okay um and, and i think maybe that you're just falling back on training at that point just be calm because you don't want to you don't want to uh have your buddies panic you know they need to do other things they need to continue the mission oh yeah they can't be taking care of just you and um we're all a team in that sense and um but, but again i think it was more self-deception than anything else <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. i think there's just dirt in my eyes <laughs> like, and, and i truly thought that because you know there, there was a lot of pain but it was wasn't necessarily in my eyes it was, it was a very strange sensation i was able to get up and um and make it to the medevac 
Hilo when it did show up and and got out of there. Uh, I think they saw my situation differently than than my own <laughs> than my own perception of what was going on because they put me out immediately. And I woke up, you know, maybe five or six days later, right. uh, a few surgeries later. Um, I was in worse shape than maybe we had thought originally. Um, I woke up in Germany after a medically induced coma, still blind, of course, and uh, hallucinating constantly. Um, you know, I, I don't. It's a it's a very not very well known uh, symptom of of going blind immediately mm -hmm. is the, the sort of hallucinations. It's almost like phantom pain. Oh wow! The way, way an amputee would feel phantom pain. Right, uh, right. A similar thing happens with vision. Uh, at least for me, it did, and it was it was an interesting experience. <laughs> Uh, a little bit terrifying, and and it just went on for days and days and days, um, and you and you would you would see, I think the last situation that you were in, and that was Afghanistan. So I and I would know it wasn't real, but that's what I saw all the time. And, and you know, some good friends of mine came up to Germany and Landstuhl and and stayed with me, and I would know that they were there talking to me, but I would see I would see maybe you know one of the many Afghan villagers that we. That we were, uh, you know, engaging with that day or the days before, I would see villages because you know, that's just the last thing I saw. And um, you know, you'd wake up from dreams and you'd know you were woken up and you know where you were, but you were still seeing the dream. Wow. Um, you know, so you're, you're literally living in a nightmare. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Um, Boy. And the doctors were not very optimistic that I would see again. My right eye was gone immediately. Um, and my left eye was, you know, on the edge. We're not, we're not sure about it. They didn't want to touch it until we had the specialist see it in Bethesda. So, you know, after a couple of days in Landstuhl, finally got me back here to Bethesda. Then we talked about surgery, and uh, it was it was a big risk. And well, I wouldn't say risk at that point because everything was already lost. But it was a, uh, it was uh, there wasn't a whole lot of hope. You know, yeah. they were like, maybe you'll see some light and shapes. Like that's what we're hoping for. Um, we got to remove the cataract that was that was caused by you know hot metal kind of searing through your eye, um, and they did. They they got the cataract out. Uh, it was unclear, you know, how much I would recover after that, but I could see a little bit. Uh, you know, with very thick glasses on, um, it, it, and for those. Of, for those in the audience who have had cataract surgery, it's a fairly routine operation. You just remove the cataract, you put a new lens in there. You can't do that with mine because right. it was so damaged by the blast. And, uh, but I recovered more and more and it was looking optimistic. And, and then the doctor said, well, now we found a hole in your retina. And when <laughs> you, <laughs> and, and when you <laughs> surprise, <laughs> and they're like, here's the good news. Uh, you'll probably see a little bit longer. Wow. <laughs> and then eventually that hole will expand because that's just what happens with the macular hole. Right, right. It expands slowly. That's just the nature uh, of, of the way your retina is built. And they can stop that by removing a membrane on the back of your retina because that membrane causes tension, which causes that hole to expand. And the way the doctors put it, I don't remember any of this, by the way, because I was, I mean, I was in a different state. Oh, and yeah. my wife re retells the story to me in my conversation with doctors and they were basically like, we suggest you just go blind, blind slowly so that you can see for a little bit longer. And, and by the way, you know, I, I put C in quotation marks cause I really couldn't see that well. Um, and then, and then their other option is we do the surgery again. It's actually very routine surgery. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're in your fifties or sixties, very routine surgery, you get a macular hole, you just fix it. 
Um, but for me, very dangerous because my eye was so uh, uh, unstable. And uh, they're like, we suggest you just go blind slowly. We could do the surgery now and you'll probably go blind immediately. So, you know, choose your options. I'm like, well, obviously do the surgery. <laughs> like, I mean, it wasn't even an option for me. I mean, I, oh, I'm man. like, that's, that's, that's a terrible idea. Just do the surgery. I'll be fine. You guys, you guys think I can't heal. I'll be fine. Yeah. Um, so they did. And I was right. It worked, it worked out okay. You know, and I, that's a, that's a combination. I think of a lot of things. It's, you know, it's faith, it's belief that you will be okay. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that truly matters. Um, when when you're faced with these kind of situations you have to have faith you have to pray and and believe and know that it's all going to be okay and it, it also helps when you have very good doctors mm-hmm. you know this combination of things um you will you will overcome anything and we did um that went well i was blind for many more weeks mm-hmm. don't get me wrong because that the, the recovery from that surgery right um it takes a while and but we made it and it got better and better and better i was able to get contacts uh that that we could use that helped me see a little bit more normal than than giant you know plus 12 magnification glasses is Mm. is what i normally would wear um we got better and better there's still a my iris is still destroyed so i can't actually open and close it (laughs) dilate my pupil the way normal people can but you know that's those are just details at this point um, compared to what we were facing and you know, eventually, I mean, it took years later, but eventually, I got contacts that that I can actually see out of. Right. And you know, it's very exciting. And within a few months of the recovery, we, it was all I really wanted to do was get back into my platoon and uh, and keep serving in that capacity. You know, I'd, I I had accomplished my dream, and that was to be a SEAL. And yeah. I, and I, I don't think I ever would have left, to be honest, um, because seals are always looking for that next mission we care about impact we care about service and 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 i think service in the hardest way possible yeah <laughs> so maybe that answers your original question why would somebody <laughs> leave and like what's the what's just the what's the hardest thing to do like maybe politics um but i i couldn't go back into a combat role so um i did deploy again um i took command of a troop of about about 50 people both seals support a lot of intel related kind of work um, deployed to Bahrain in 2014. Uh, worked there. Worked across Lebanon as well. Came back from that and uh, kept fighting the system. kept kept fighting to stay in. Uh, get those medical waivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, never really worked out, but I was able to deploy one more time to South Korea in uh, 2016. And after that, I had to be medically retired. Right. And uh, thus begins the transition to you know what's next. Right. And. Um, so I immediately did my master's degree at the Harvard Kennedy School, studying public policy. I, I knew I never wanted to leave government. I knew I wanted to stay in government service in some form or fashion, and uh, you know, certainly with a with an emphasis on Texas. Right. Um, you know, looking for careers either in Texas government. You know, thinking about politics, but not maybe not immediately. Right. And um, as I continued to look, and you know, I worked for uh, Congressman Pete Sessions for a while. An amazing man took me right in, uh, helped me get a feel for what it would be like, I think, to work in, in work in Congress, and and then this opportunity came up, <laughs> and uh, we got some quick backing and encouragement to go, and it felt right 
for me and my wife. Um, we'd, I think we'd known in our hearts it was always the right thing to do. Right. It was my home. I had just been down there volunteering for Hurricane Harvey cleanup. Um, it, it pulls a whole lot of heartstrings for me. And, and, I, and I just, I, I love Texas. I love what it stands for. I love freedom. I love conservative values. It, these things are important to me. And I, and I think they're, they're getting lost a little bit. A and lot, I, maybe. <laughs> I think that was one of my big questions for you, and that was kind of what is your goal? I mean, first off, uh, you know, as as someone who's served in the military, you know that you have to have a plan in place, mm-hmm. and you have one now. As uh, as we were talking off air, you have to get elected before you can do anything. But what part of the process of getting elected is letting people know what you plan to do if you are. And we're speaking with Dan Crenshaw. Dan is a former Navy SEAL, currently running for Congress in Texas's second district down in the Houston area. So that's my next question, Dan. What is it that you plan to do if you're able to achieve office? Well, like I said, I, I strongly believe in conservative values and I feel that they're slipping away. Um, the people I'm running against, we're all going to agree on policy. We're all going to be very free market, very free enterprise, right. um, constitutionalists. We're going to be socially conservative. And not only do I believe in that, but I believe we're losing it. And I think we need leaders with credibility who can speak to the next generation. Biggest fear of mine is that, is that our party, our values slip away. We're being demonized constantly. And I see it. I mean, geez, I went to school at Harvard. Okay. <laughs> Hey, as um, a native New Englander, yeah, yeah. I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, and um, that worries me. I think there's a shift in, in balance and thinking in this country that I do not want to see happen. Um, I also believe that given the world we're in right now, you know, with North Korea and their, their you know, new intercontinental ballistic missiles that could possibly reach the United States, it's only a matter right. of time before they put nuclear warheads on these things. We need people who have a little bit more relevant experience in these things, not just talking points. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it takes years of classified briefings and experience to really understand the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, and and what is needed, what is not needed, how to assess programs in the right way, and and, and really make a difference. Um, it's not just North Korea. There's a lot of other issues. Uh, you know, in the next eight to 10 years, we have the Iran nuclear deal beginning to expire. And what happened to our leverage that we had before? Well, it's gone. And we're not talking about these things. We're not talking about smart whole-of-government approaches to thwart these vets and to you know to to, to combat Iranian influence in that region, um, again we need people who have been there and done that, who have worked these issues like I have. Uh, that's important. People who will be honest with the American people about the fight against terror mm-hmm. and what it takes to to win that. You know, I, I like that we have a president right now who's not talking about timelines in Afghanistan or Iraq. Yeah. He's not talking about. They're an obsession with troop levels. He's talking about impact. That's important. And that's important. And it's time we be honest with people about what matters. You, you can't always tell citizens what they want to hear. No. Have to be honest. And we have to be. We have to remember what happens when you leave a vacuum in places like this. We, yeah. we just saw it in Iraq. We 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 saw it a long time ago. But it's you know for some people it's a lifetime ago. Some people don't. A lot. And this generation doesn't even remember September 11th. Yeah. But well, 16 we do. years ago, if you're 21, you're five years old when it happened. I yeah. mean, it's 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 getting up. As it's, as Jake and I were just talking about, I, I we talked about those older veterans before, and man, I'm becoming one of them. I just turned 38 years old. You yeah, know? like I'm almost one of those guys. Time has moved on. It's been a long time, but 
I, I think you're right in that a lot of the younger generation doesn't have that strong memory that say you and I do. I, for me, being on board the USS Saipan and hearing, hey, aren't you from around New York City? A plane just crashed into the building. And then everything that unfolded from there, it does seem that some of that has been a little bit forgotten, a little bit left behind in people's memories but not in the memories of men like Dan Crenshaw, who served on SEAL Team 3 and is now hoping to serve the people of the 2nd District of Texas in Congress as he runs for that seat in Washington, D.C. Of course, is where we are now as well, broadcasting uh, from this city and looking around every day here at what politics is these days, what politics has become. It seems that on Almost every item, except for veterans issues, oddly enough, as we sit here, two veterans talking, it seems there's so much divisiveness within politics. Do you think that's something that needs to or can be addressed where we can start getting on the same page regardless of what party we affiliate ourselves with? Yeah, we we do look for areas that we can agree on. Um, And you're right, it has moved further apart. You know, uh, one thing I'm very big on is border security. That used to be bipartisan. It didn't used to be controversial to say mm-hmm. that I care about border security. Now it is. All right. And you know, it, we're, we're finding less and less things that we can agree on. Um, I think it's important to get vets in office because on either side, we can talk to each other. We know deep down that we're coming from a good place. Yep. Even though we have very different ideas of, of, of how to get to that end goal. Um, that's important. It, it's important to talk about leadership too. And, and I think, I think people confuse leadership with authority and maybe in, in the sense of politics, they confuse leadership with the ability to vote, you know, and, and I don't think we should vote for people for just to get that one out of 435 votes in the house of representatives, mm-hmm. you know, that's important and you want somebody to vote your interest, but you also somebody want somebody with credibility who can, who can inspire people who can lead them, who knows what leadership really is. And it's inspiration. It's showing passion. It's connecting with people. It's caring about each other. We don't have to demonize the other side. We can tell them they're wrong. (laughs) I will. (laughs) But, but you know, I don't hate them and, and I don't want them to hate me. And and that's where we're at. And we need to show a little bit more love in this world and in politics. You know, we can, this is America. (laughs) You know, like what colors matter. It's the red, white, and blue. You know what I think we're seeing in politics specifically is, in a lot of cases, on a personal level, me now knowing a lot of people, I'm fairly new to D.C., but now knowing a lot of people who are more entrenched here, that on a personal level, a lot of these politicians who everybody thinks hate each other, they actually get along pretty well on a personal level. However, when appealing to their constituency, they take that kind of hardcore aspect to kind of look good to their voters, even though they might not dislike this other person and, or, you know, their idea ideologies may differ, but on a personal basis, they they don't hate them, but they don't often present it that way. So uh, it's interesting to hear you say that, that actually hearing a politician say like, Hey, I don't want these people to hate me. Whereas for many, uh, it's kind of beneficial when it comes to, you know, the voting day, when people go to the ballot box, Oh, this guy hates so-and-so, or this woman hates him. He hates her. That's who, I'm going to vote for. Uh, It's really fascinating. And hearing you talk about, you know, the veterans in particular in Congress that can understand each other. I mean, I think of someone like Senator Tammy Duckworth, who I don't know that you guys would agree on all that much politically, (laughs) but I think you guys could understand each other 
pretty well and you'd be able to sit down, have a civil conversation, even a friendly conversation, even if you differ on on various uh, political points. So uh, it, it's really it's kind of refreshing to hear you say like, hey, I'm not going in there to try and destroy no. these other people. I'm going to try to work with them. No, yeah, we, we, we need to get through that. We need to get through that. Absolutely. It's an it's an important point. Now, let's talk about your team, because to get to Congress, you need a whole bunch of people helping you. Basically, you cannot do it on your own. It, it kind of goes to even being a Navy SEAL. SEALs can do a lot on their own, but they operate in teams because you need a team to achieve your goal, to achieve a successful mission accomplishment. Tell us a little bit about your team and any veteran involvement that you have, either directly people who are working on your congressional campaign or just support you've gotten from your fellow vets, your fellow SEAL team members. How's that all been? The the SEAL teams are, are definitely a secret weapon. <laughs> I mean, they're <laughs> we're everywhere, um, and and we're well and we're connected to each other, and and we care about each other in in very deep ways. Um, you know, moving away from the campaign for just real quick, it, it's it's unlike any other community. I mean, you know, the support that you're given, like the the these the the nonprofits that we've created, um, just for seals. It's it's always so impressive to me to see the brotherhood, as we call it, come together. Um, and a lot of support. You know, we we have our we have our online groups. We have our ways of connecting. Gotten a lot of good support from from guys all over. Um, you know, we'll be working with Marcus Luttrell a lot in Houston oh, nice. uh, on the campaign. Um, him and his wife Melanie. They're they're really great, and uh, can't wait to can't wait to see have them involved as much as possible. Um, you know, the, the Houston is the second largest veteran community in the country, <clears throat> so it's huge for us, and uh, that that that's certainly a big part of the campaign. You know, aside from that, you know, I've got my strategist. We're hiring a campaign manager now. Um, just the basics, you know, give it up. We started this, we decided to do this about three, four weeks ago. Wow. So it's still fresh. <laughs> it's, 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 it's very fresh. Uh, we are, we're getting the basics up and running and, uh, you know, we need help. Like you said, you can, can't do anything alone. No, I mean, I don't think anybody's done anything great alone ever, uh, except for maybe the guy who invented Play-Doh. You know, that's pretty cool. That's, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's right. one individual Nobody accomplishment. Nobody gives that but, guy his due, man. The no. Play-Doh guy is awesome. <laughs> Other than that, you know, it's it takes team efforts. We don't accomplish anything in the SEAL teams without without all all your teammates there. Um, I couldn't have gotten to where I am today without the support, the people right by my bedside who came up to Bethesda and just dealt with my craziness so that I could... You know, so that I could keep it up, like keep with it. You know, with my wife just there, like every day, every night. Um, she's a huge part of this. This is I always say, like we are running, and everyone's like, "Is your wife running?" I'm like, no, no. I mean, it's it's a team. It's a team effort. You can't do this alone. <laughs> it's it's absolutely not something that you can do alone. And Dan Crenshaw has a team with him as he is now running for Congress in the second district down in Houston, Texas. We've been speaking to Dan, the former SEAL and current congressional candidate here on the morning briefing. And Dan, we're just about to wrap things up. But for our listeners who might be interested in finding out more about you, more about your campaign, where can they go to find out more about Dan Crenshaw? Please go to CrenshawForCongress.com. You can follow us on Facebook as well at Crenshaw for Congress. <laughs> there you go. Really an honor having you in studio, man. Anytime I get to talk to one of our warriors who sacrificed so much for our country, uh, it, it's really wonderful. And I thank you so much for your time this morning here on The Morning Briefing. Oh, man. thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure today and tomorrow, yet another pleasureful show. So I hope you join us then every Monday through Friday, 0700 to 0830 Morning Briefing on behalf of myself and Jake. See you tomorrow. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.